All right. Welcome back to the show, everyone. Today we have on Chris Salerno. Chris is somebody I've been following for a while, and I'm super excited if you can watch the video and see my smile on my face to have him on the show because he is so successful in a lot of different things from uh, being named 30 under 30, nominated as uh, Elite 50 Entrepreneur in Charlotte. He's done over $40 million in transactions as a realtor before starting his company and raising funds for multifamily investments. There's just a ton that I've learned from Chris watching him from afar, so I'm super excited to get to know him. Uh, but with that, I'm going to stop there and just say, Chris, welcome to the show. Thanks so much, Matt, for having me on. Very excited to be on and add value to your listeners. Absolutely. Well, Chris, we like to start with the most difficult questions here. What's your favorite ice cream? Oh, I'm a sucker for um, um, it's a chocolate, like chocolate brownie. I love okay. that. I love uh, I lo and uh, oh, Oreo. I, I'm a sucker for that, too. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, Where do, those are my favorite. do you have any specific place that you go to get the Oreo like McDonald's or anything? Uh, like no, that? I don't eat McDonald's. <laughs> I, I stopped that 20 years ago. <laughs> um, uh, no, not really. Um, there, there's sometimes that uh, there's a little, uh, what is it like Ben and Jerry's uh, or there's a little ice cream shop right across the street from where I live. And sometimes I'll pop in there and get uh, like um, uh, chocolate loose tracks or, or cookies and cream or Oreo. Um, but no, yeah, I, I am a sucker for uh, Chick-fil-A. They do okay. have some good Oreo yeah. milkshakes and uh, their chocolate chip cookies are the best. If I've you had, nominated them the best. <laughs> if you had to pick between like an ice cream cone or bowl or whatever, or a milkshake, what would you pick? Ooh, that's a good one. I would probably go with an ice cream uh, cone and on the cone have chocolate at the top. Nice, nice. I love it. All right. Well, tell our listeners, what's the scoop? What do you do today? Yeah, so uh, today I, uh, I'm the CEO of QC Capital. I operate QC Capital, which is a private equity firm uh, based out of Charlotte, North Carolina. Uh, we acquire large multifamily assets with passive investors that uh, invest alongside of us into the deal itself. Um, and uh, they come from anywhere from uh, high net worth, doctors, uh, attorneys, um, uh, tech uh, industries, you name it, people that are just so busy they're making so much cash and they want to have a tax benefit and also double their money better than what the stock market can do. Uh, and we focus on the Carolinas, Atlanta and Florida markets. Uh, so just right there on, on the Southeast at the moment, uh, fairly large properties, anywhere from hundred to 350 units. Gotcha. Gotcha. And you're from South, South Florida, right? I am. I'm sure. Uh, yeah, good, good mind. Good mind. I'm from Fort Lauderdale to be exact, but I've lived here in Charlotte uh, 14 uh, next year will be 15 years. So, uh, so yeah. Gotcha. Gotcha. Yeah. I love the Charlotte market. Not many people realize how big of a financial institution it is, but maybe your it's boys the second biggest financial district in the United States. And a lot of people don't realize that, that we're home to bank of America, Wells Fargo. Uh, um, I mean, all these large financial firms um, and uh, it's right after Manhattan. Yep. Yep. So where did your real estate journey begin? Mm, that's a good question. Um, I was always intrigued with real estate at, at a very younger age. Um, I was never the type to love to do the same thing over and over and over. I wanted to, to really do something new uh, and, and have it be a challenge. And so the real estate journey began uh, when I was younger in Florida. Um, I would, I would, uh, where I lived was not a, a nice neighborhood. It was a decent neighborhood, lower to middle class. But I would always sneak through the gates of these million-dollar homes. And I, I rode my bike and I would tell myself, I will have one of these one day. And I would love to just look at the design, the, the you know, how, how large they are, how nice they are. And I just kept telling myself, I will have this one day. 
And, um, and so that's where it really started. And then it cultivated into, uh, I left college early, um, dropped out after a year and a half. Um, and I was working two jobs at the time. While I was working those jobs, I was studying to get my real estate license. Uh, I passed my real estate license, put my two weeks in on those two jobs, and, uh, and I jumped head first. I had, uh, I think, like $6,200 saved up in my pocket. And I said, I'm going to make this work. Now, after all the you know, business fees up front, I'm like, okay, now I have like 2300 So I got to make this work. Yeah. Um, and then, and the reason why I went as a broker when I started off is because I knew my work ethic, I would outperform everybody because I'm willing to work harder than anyone. And so I knew that when you're selling residential real estate, your income follows your work ethic. So what I did, uh, was I got straight into it. I started cold calling. I started finding out and how to placing the right systems to gain clients. Uh, and that's what I did. And very, very quickly became the top agent with Keller Williams, uh, here in, in Charlotte. And then, uh, and then, uh, never looked back. Yeah. So you mentioned something about process and system, and I've heard you talk a little bit about this in the past, but could you like, what was the, what was the system that you put in? Because I think of realtors as like almost the more touches you make, the more people you meet naturally the drag is going to happen, but so many people get focused on the result rather than the effort that they're putting in. So could you talk to us a little bit about some systems or processes that you put in place there? Oh, um, Charlotte's not a good geographic area for door knocking. Uh, in yeah. my opinion, yeah, you'll have some neighbors, neighborhoods that are great for door knocking, but overall, it's not a good geographical area for door knocking. So, um, so that's what I first did. I got into the business. You know, Keller Williams is big on door knocking, cold calling, and uh, I started door knocking homes. And while I was door knocking, I would wake up early in the morning, find the expireds and withdrawals uh, or withdrawals from the market. I would map out the farthest one, and then. I would make a I would make a schedule on all the other ones I have to hit all the way back to the office. So early mornings I would drive there right when eight o'clock hit, door knock, no answer, left a card, left a little uh, goodie bag, and then hit all the way back. And I realized I'm like shit. Excuse my French. I'm like, this is taking all day, and there's no results. How can I maximize the people I can touch and get larger results? So I then said, I'm going to master cold calling. I'm going to master picking up that phone and calling people because that's the easiest way to, to touch them all within a couple hours. And, and you're not driving, you're not using gas, you're not wasting your time. So, uh, so I started mastering cold calling. I started mastering uh, how to under, you know, wordsmithing, um, how to speak to people, how to uh, understand people over the phone, how to listen and, and their tone of voice to, to understand how they're feeling. Um, and then that's when I started cold calling and I got to a point where I was cold calling, uh, listings and I had two, uh, I had two people in one day sign a listing agreement without me even going out to the property over the phone. Um, and, and that's how I started ramping up the business, uh, very quickly was, was cold calling and, and reaching out to, uh, to pro reaching out to people who did not sell their home, but I knew was in a hot market, hot location that it will sell, but just at the right price. Yeah. And anything will sell at the right price. Anything will. Yeah. You, um, I, I have four steps, I think, to achieving anything. It's one first clarity, understanding what you're trying to achieve. The second is consistency. You don't have to do the right thing. You just have to do something every single day. And then efficiency, which is really honing in on 
these were the things I was doing. Now I need to be more efficient with it. And then the last one is compounding, meaning you have to keep doing it. How did you decide that, hey, I'm not receiving the results and maybe it's time to switch strategies versus I'm not seeing the results. I've got to give it more time. Any kind of tip you can provide there on people that are looking at their life saying, I'm doing things consistently. I'm not getting a result. Do they need to keep going or maybe adjust strategies? Yeah. I mean, you know, and the, and the biggest thing is too, is that people will go ahead and, and try something and very quickly change their strategy because it's not working right away. And you have to gauge that in my opinion, like when it comes to marketing, I expect marketing to really kick in seven to nine months down the road. That's when I expect it. And that's what I'm setting myself up for seven to nine months down the road. That's when the marketing is truly going to kick in when it comes to uh, you know, effort in, in seeing if you're going to get a return, you know, for example, being a real estate broker that right there, I think you can see that a lot quicker than seven to nine months. I mean, if, if three weeks go by and you're door knocking, you haven't gotten one person, chances are, you know, it's going to be very slim for the next seven months. So you might as well change it up very quickly. So I would say gauge the situation you're in, gauge the, uh, the goal that you have in mind to make sure that that's the right path that you need to take to reach that goal. Good stuff. Good stuff. So some of our listeners out there might be trying to invest in their first property. And I would always advise if you're trying to invest in your first property to do it at least through a realtor. Don't go to wholesales and things like that because you don't know what you don't know yet. And it's better that you don't lose money on your first property because that's considered a success. From your standpoint as a former realtor, uh, recovering realtor, what would you say that uh, our, our investors should be looking for when they're looking to work with a realtor for an investment property instead of a single family home that they're going to live in? Yeah, I mean, uh, when it comes to investors, I'm not a big fan of single family. Uh, so just to make that note, I'm not yeah. a fan of it. Uh, I left it for a reason to get into multifamily. Um, but for those single family investors out there that are looking to just get their feet wet, uh, honestly, you know, find uh, find a good reputable team um, or a good reputable company that has a good team with a good buyer's agent on there, and and ask them questions. You know, are you familiar with real estate investors? Have you worked with real estate investors before? What type fix and flips? You know, what type uh, buy and hold type of investors? Because um, you want to get a good idea and let and be honest with them. Look, this is my first property. I don't know so much, so I'm going to be relying on you a little bit. Uh, or a lot. So I'm really going to need your expertise when it comes to the due diligence, inspections, what to look for and what not to look for. Uh, and I think setting those boundaries up front will help tremendously to make sure that that's a, a, you know, a property that you want to buy um, when it comes to single family. Absolutely. Cool. Cool. So you mentioned that you're not a fan of single family and that you went into multifamily. What were some of the trends or why did you decide to go into multifamily? Oh my God. Economies of scale. I mean, I, I, I sold my last single family like a month ago. And when it comes to single family, I mean, for example, Matt, if you're renting a single family from me, you decide not to pay. Who's paying the rent? Right. No one. I am. I'm paying yeah. the rent. Yeah. Because uh, I'm not going to have them, you know, take the pro- back the property. Uh, if hot water heater goes out, $800 to $1,000, who pays it? Me. Yeah. You know? So what happens to your profit margin if you're only cash flowing $300 a month? I mean, let's let's do the math. Three, three times twelve is what? Thirty six hundred dollars. Hot water heater goes out. Let's round up high. That's a thousand dollars. Now you're only at twenty six hundred dollars a year. That's nothing. Too risky. Um, so so I left that. Sold everything I had in single family. Got into multifamily because the economy is a scale. Uh, you have a larger amount of properties. For example, a two hundred unit apartment complex. Two hundred unit apart- apartment complex. If ten people, or say if fifty people don't pay. 
you have 150 people that are paying to pay your mortgage and pay all your expenses. Now we do the math uh, into detail on that number to make sure we don't, you know, if something happens like COVID 2.0 or something like that, we know what's our bottom line occupancy that we need to make sure everything's paid for. But, uh, and, and not only economy of scale, when it comes to single family, Matt, that single family I have that you're renting from next door neighbor, say, uh, say they get a divorce and the house is worth 400, but they want to sell it at 325. How much is my house going to be worth? Yep. 320. Uh, it's going to be close to that 325. Yeah. Now you can argue with the appraiser. Oh, they got a divorce, this and that, but it's going to be close to that number. This multifamily property is only based on the revenue that's coming in. So it doesn't matter if you sold because your partners wanted you to sell and things like that. It's only based off the revenue, which is great. Third thing, and then uh, we'll go on, is that the value of the property you can add tremendously. If you're renting the unit and, and your lease is up and I'm going to say, Matt, I'm going to uh, increase your rent $100. So actually, let's say $200. $200, Matt. What's $200? $200 a month times 12 is what? $2,400 a year, okay? Uh, that adds probably, I mean, that doesn't add any valuation onto your property because it's based off of what your neighbors have sold for. Let's talk about a 200-unit apartment complex. Let's add, we're increasing the rents $200 per unit, okay? So if you do 200 times 200, you're at $40,000 that you just increased. And that's a year, I mean, that's a month. So times that by 12, you're at $480,000 that you just increased that year. Yep. Unbelievable. Divide that number by the cap rate that is going on in that market. Say you divide it by a 4.5 cap. That's a $10.6 million evaluation. You just put it in your pocket. Yep. yep. That's why I love multifamily real estate. And, and, and we didn't even get into the tax benefits too. But. Yeah. And I think most of our listeners know that I'm transitioning from my single family portfolio into multifamily specifically for all the reasons that you mentioned. I had a water, I had a HVAC go out uh, at one of my properties, 5,000 bucks, didn't kill me, wiped out the cash flow for the entire year. And then two, when you're looking at multifamily, you're really looking at a small business. You are buying an asset that is a small business. And the more you increase the profit off of that, meaning whether you raise Income, rents, pet fees, storage fees, et cetera. The more you reduce expenses, management expenses, operating expenses, et cetera, the more you increase the value of it versus, to your point, not what the unit next door sold for. And so that is one of the biggest benefits I see in multifamily. Um, you're, you're one of the, the best people out there I know that, that really understands how these things are structured, both from being a, a, an investor, but also being on the brokerage side and real estate side previous. Can you talk our listeners through the different types of properties in multifamily? So I know we hear a lot about like A class, B class, core assets, all that kind of stuff. So let's start with the different classes of real estate. What's an A class versus a C class kind of thing? Yeah, and, and A class is, is uh, you know, I see it across the board in, in how we operate when it comes to C class. It's determined by the um, it's determined by the age of the property, um, and that's what we've seen. And, and some people take that a little differently. Um, I mean, I've some I've seen some people say they just bought an A class, but their property was built in like 1990, and I'm like, okay, you know, yeah. I, I don't know. So it, it, you may hear it a little differently, but w- how we operate is. It, it, the year that it was built. So 1960 to 1975, 1980 would be C, 1980 to 2000 and like five would be B. And then 2005 to present is like A class. Um, and, and those those years can be stretched a little bit. 
your A class is your brand new construction, you know, newer type of asset, uh, brand new amenities, uh, normally at the close to the market rent. Um, that's where your, your A class is. You don't have to do that much upfit uh, renovations or anything like that. Just some cosmetic stuff to, to make it look even prettier than it is uh, to increase rents organically. Um, C class is where, you know, you're going in and you're going to put anywhere from six to 15,000 per unit, and you're going to increase the rents like $300. Um, so it's, uh, it's just all across the board. And, yes. and it brings totally different type of demographic of tenants and, and different problems and things like that. Uh, you know, it's, it's a whole different world. Yeah. I like to say like the A class is the nicest, newest building in town. Just think of that. And then C class is what used to be the nicest, newest building in town a couple of decades ago. That's how you should kind of view it. And, and then location dependent and all that kind of stuff. I know when you first started QC Capital, you were very focused on like C class and B class value add properties. And you you were talking a little bit about how you shifted your strategies there. So first of all, if, if I'm a passive investor and somebody says, I focus on C class properties, value add, what, what does that mean? What, what do I need to know as, a, as an investor in that property? Yeah, you need to know that the property is going to be older and there's, they're going to do renovations. So they're going to try to go in there and, and put granite countertops or, you know, or stainless steel appliances, painting the cabinets or even brand new cabinets. Um, and so that means that they're going to go in and value add an older type of property, just like if you would fix and flip a house. Very similar to that, an older type of home, you're going to fix and flip a multifamily, just more units and larger buildings. Yeah. So what's the risk for me as a passive investor in that? Because I know we're coming at a time when the market is just crazy, right? Whether that's valuations or lumber prices or finding people to come to work right now from a contract standpoint. So what are my risk and and somebody that executes a C-class value add strategy in their in their strategies? Yeah. So the risk, uh, you know, there's a, in my opinion, there's a lot of risk with these older properties when it comes to piping, uh, when it comes to wiring. I mean, I've, I've analyzed deals and they have not fixed any of the piping or wiring. And that right there could be millions of dollars. If you're going to have to rip up all the drywall, put all new electrical in, put all new piping in because of the old PVC leaks, you know, it, it, uh, it it's really important to, to know that. Um, and when you start ripping up an older home, you're going to find some issues. So if you start ripping up an older building, you're going to find some issues that maybe you didn't necessarily see during your due diligence. So it's a huge risk in that aspect because one unit may take three weeks to two months to renovate. Now you just got a unit vacant and you're pouring money into it and you're not having it rented. So you're not making money compared to if you, if you look at these newer type of properties, which we like right now, A and, and B plus, those are the assets we're focused on. If you look at these newer type of assets, there's little things we do. For example, if, if they don't have keyless door fobs, we put keyless door fobs. If they don't have a Nest thermostat, we put a Nest thermostat to do like a technology package. We add backsplash, which is a couple hundred dollars. That goes a long way, believe it or not, where we can increase rents, uh, not, or, not, not always organically, but increase rents above that organic rent growth that is happening in that market. And, and we're able to see very attractive returns. And also we're limiting our risk because with those little things, you can get that done in a day, maybe two days to let it dry. So no one messes it up. Two days max, you can get all those little things done back on the market, ready to be leased compared to these larger value adds of these older properties where it's going to take some time. 
and, and you're going to deal with contractors. You're going to deal with pricing going up, going down, you know, due to what's going on in the, in the world. So it, it, it definitely plays a factor. I do see a, a limited risk in the newer type of assets compared to the older ones. Yeah, there's an investment thesis out there that's exactly that. In volatile times like today where lumber shoots up, shoots down, where contractors one day uh, are coming to work and the next day they're not, when we can evict people and then we can't evict people in volatile times, you want to shorten your time frame for what you're trying to add value to. So yeah. to your point, putting on black splash might take something like a day to two days and then it's done in three and you can move someone in eventually immediately. Whereas if you're doing a full reno on a property, I have never ripped a, a drywall or uh, flooring and it been exactly as I expected. So you're always going to be adding time periods. And I, I think we're fine, right? I'm not trying to be doom and gloom over here, but the longer you extenuate things in volatile markets, the more risk. risk you're putting it at. Oh yeah. Yep. Yep. Um, so, uh, you mentioned tech packages. Are you seeing any kind of, are you doing any kind of ESG ads today? So in environmental social governance, uh, you're seeing some people do like, uh, energy efficiency and getting Fannie rebates for that and things like that. Are you doing anything like that? Um, the older assets that we currently own, we're doing more energy efficient. We just signed a contract with a deal um, and uh, they're coming in uh, at the end of this month, early next month to replace all the toilets, shower heads and all that uh, to make them more uh, energy efficient. Um, so we do do that with the older assets. We'll look at it with the newer assets. It's, it's, it's getting competitive. This market is so competitive. You need to think outside the box. You need to think of other ways to, to generate more revenue for the property. And that's what people are doing. They're, they're going outside of the box to figure out other ways to generate more revenue to the property. Yeah. What, what are you doing anything specific beyond the tech packages? Like I've seen dog parks, I've seen uh, free Wi-Fi. Yeah, I've so seen we do dog parks. Uh, we do Wi-Fi where we can own the Wi-Fi and we charge it back. Uh, we do tech packages inside. We've uh, came up with a very unique uh, um, idea that we found uh, by touring a property where we were able to have like in the master bedroom, a TV behind the mirror. So just like if you go to a Ritz Carlton, like a fancy hotel, they normally have a TV behind the mirror. So uh, we found that we can do that uh, in the master bedroom. And it is like wonderful. Tenants always think of that or prospective tenants always think of that when they tour. They're like, oh, this was the place that had the TV behind the mirror, which is cool. It's different. Um, right now we're seeing a lot of golf simulators. Uh, we're seeing, uh, just outside of saunas. I mean, steam rooms, we're seeing a lot of that happening right now here, uh, with properties. Uh, we, you know, for exterior, we look at dog parks, putting ranges, uh, new paint, new landscaping, car wash stations, uh, you know, dog, uh, cleaning stations, um, lockers, uh, for Amazon, things like that. So we have a full vendor list that we check all of our boxes. We also have a partnership with a company uh, that comes in and designs closets. Uh, like, you know, not just your wire shelf. There's, there's nice shelves, drawers, and things like that, which helps tremendously. Um, so, uh, and that, that also drives the value up. Yeah, I'm smiling because every A-class property I feel like that's coming on the market right now has a place to clean your pet or your dog. And it's like, I mean, the small things matter, right? If you're oh, looking yeah. at a competitive environment, little details matter. And all these younger people have dogs and you actually make more money with them coming in and having these dogs. You make yep. a lot more money. Yep, absolutely. So what's the, if I'm a passive investor right now and I want to get involved with uh, somebody that goes out and syndicates funds or puts together deals and things like that, 
what are some ways that I can vet operators? How do I know that, you know, Joe Schmo is not going to take my money and run and things like that? Um, any tips or tricks you can give us there? Yeah, you know, we're, we're actually writing, um, we were writing a book um, and we just got the LLC back uh, and we're finalizing it and putting it on Amazon. Uh, and it's called the uh, Multifamily Investor Booklet. And it is going to give you from start to finish the questions to ask, how to vet sponsors, um, how to uh, analyze deals, how to, um, what, uh, what type of questions to ask the sponsors, the GP teams before you invest. Uh, and it's, it's very important to ask questions, to analyze, to see their references, um, to see if they have any investors that they would like to refer to, to discuss things uh, about how they've performed, how their distributions are. Uh, early on uh, in my syndication business, I invested passively into a group. Uh, and, uh, and the reason why I wrote the book is because I invested passively and, uh, and they took my money. So, uh, so I wrote the book so that doesn't happen to other people. Um, and, uh, so it, it's very important to do your research, um, and, and really go deep, very deep with that, uh, that group, uh, before you actually go ahead and invest. Yeah. I, I like to ask people too, about their worst deal, because ultimately it's not really about, are you going to have problems? I can't prevent a problem happening. I can't prevent COVID 2.0 from happening. I can't prevent right. all these issues. How, how did you handle problems when they happened is more importantly than did you avoid any kind of problems? I don't avoid problems. I want to hit them head on. Don't, 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 I'm not in boredom. I'm not driving around them. I want to hit them head on as hard as possible. There you That's go. how you learn. Um, when I got out or when I got out of the residential industry, I had a contractor. He stole like 90,000 from me. And, and I trusted him because we'd done like four houses prior to that. So I had trust in him, but he, he ran off with 90 grand. Um, and so what, what am I going to do? You know, he, he spent my money. He doesn't have my money to give me back. The only other thing I can think of is how can I fix this situation that I'm currently in right now and, and, and come out profitable. Now I came out profitable, still profited 30,000 on the deal. Um, but um, but it's, it's very important to, to take those situations and hit them head on. Uh, and analyze them very quickly. That's one thing I do. And we were chatting a little bit, you know, about um, um, personal versus business. Uh, that's one thing I do in, in both my life's personal and business is that I, I hit it head on. I address it. I, I if there's any situations, I, I bring it up right then and there and I analyze it very quickly. And I'm an options guy. I, I don't know the game of chess, but I want to I want to learn it and I will. And, and the reason why I like chess is because it's an options from what I've read about chess, an, an opponent can think up to 15 moves ahead of you. So that tells me that they have options. And I'm always about options. If you make this move, I can go here and do this. If you make this move, I can go here and do that. So that gives me options. So I have formulated uh, in business, and that's to where I've grown the company today, is options. If we do this, what, what's our ramifications? okay, if this is our ramifications, what option do we have to, to fix it? And I do that and I don't just do it once. I do it three to six times on one situation. Um, and that has helped me tremendously when I go into a meeting and they, they tell me something and then I tell them something back and they weren't expecting it because I was already programming in my head, okay, they're going to either say this. And if they say this, I'm going to say this. But if they say this, I'm going to say this. So I hope that makes sense a little bit. Um, but I do that in business and I prep myself before meetings and things like that. So I'm well prepared across the board. 
Yeah, I think that goes back to my little four principles around clarity. What are you really trying to accomplish here? And one of this books, book I read the other day was talking about in Harvard Business School, they talk about when you go into a negotiation, think about your best worst option. So like when you're coming out of this, if you don't get a deal, what is the best worst option? And then that's what you're comparing it against, not what you fully want. So yep. they, everybody goes in saying, I want 100% of blah, 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 as opposed to my best worst option is I go 15% into something I'm not that passionate about. So all of a sudden, 50% of this deal doesn't really sound that bad. So it's always important to know about options and how you get options and how you understand yes. your options is being clear on what you're trying to achieve first. And it's all communication. I mean, same with the relationships. What's a big, uh, what's a big issue with the relationship? Communication. People don't communicate anymore. You know, uh, it's, it's very important to communicate and not only in your relationship and your business relationships. I mean, if you go into business as a business partner, you're married to that person. Communicate with them. Tell them how you feel. Mm-hmm. You know, let them know you're having a bad day. You know, uh, that's, that's why I think uh, our employees love to work for QC Capital is because we, we embrace that. If you're having a bad day, say you're having a bad day. Go take 15 minutes, cool down, reset yourself, get back in here, let's get after it. Um, because we all have bad days. We're human. You know, we're, something's going to, to, to change our mindset at the moment. Our feelings are going to change at the moment. And you have to be able to hit it head on. You have to be able to address it head on. And if you have to take a little breather to do that, that's what you need to do. Yep. Yep. In my W2 job, uh, I had a VP tell me one time, like, there's no such thing as work-life balance anymore because it's all co-mingled. What people want to know is that the person you are in your work is the same person that you are in your uh, personal life. And it's not necessarily a balance. It's just a fluidity of your authentic self getting stuff done because ultimately that's, that's what happened to Tiger Woods, right? Like yeah. Tiger Woods, why everybody's hating on the guy and, and why he, we feel so bad about it is because we thought he was someone different. He put a perception of someone different, not knowing that he had all these demons out there. And when those finally arose, we all felt like betrayed by it. You're right. I mean, well said, I, I couldn't yeah. say any better than yeah. So Chris, I want to switch us down to the last five questions that we're calling these five toppings um, around for everybody. The first one is what is your favorite book or what's a book you read recently that's had an impact on you? Oh God. Uh, favorite book. I got a lot of books. Um, uh, let's see. Uh, my main love, the book I truly love is uh, Think and Grow Rich by Napoleon yep. Hill. That's a book I truly love. Uh, Never Split the Difference is also another good book. Um, currently at the moment, I am thinking of, inf- or I'm reading Influence. Mm-hmm. Um, the, uh, it's, it's about persuasion and, and the mindset. I'm big about mindset. Um, uh, I'm big about understanding how we think, how we feel, how if I said something to you, how it's going to make you feel and how you're going to react, because that's going to help me better in business. Um, so there's like a new Netflix documentary that's out that's really cool. And it breaks down like your mind and and how your, your nervous system happens when something uh, uh, like bad or uh, a good situation happens. So it's very, I try to gear everything towards the mind and understanding how you're going to think. But I also love uh, business books, uh, true authentic like business books and things like that. Yeah, one of the best pieces of advice I've ever got was don't listen to what someone's saying, try to figure out why they're saying it. And if, yeah. if you have that, then you have the empathy of trying to put yourself in their shoes and their situation. Um, very much so. I believe that the person you are 10 years from now is directly correlated to the things that you do every single day. What is something you do every single day? Meditate, meditate twice a day. 
no matter how worse my day is, uh, you know, and, and I have bad days. Yeah. I'm even though I'm strong mindset, strong mindset, strong will, very positive. I have t- bad days, uh, very bad days. Uh, and, and that comes with having, a, you know, if you're having a very strong mindset, if you're always positive, you're going to have really, really bad days. So uh, I meditate, um, turn off the phone, forget everything. And I just sit there and relax and meditate. And that's helped tremendously. Yeah. I smile because our listeners know I used to think it was such a foo-foo thing. And then I tried it and it's so hard originally, but once you start doing it, you recognize the power. It's like, basically you're a, it's a it's charger just, and you're plugging it into your phone. It's just 100%, recharging. You. 100%. And I want to go to the next level. I want to go to the next level. And the next level is going to a monk or going to a yeah. temple with monks where you do not talk at all. And all you do is meditate. And some, you have to go there for like a weekend trip. Some's like a one week long trip, no technology, just you. And you can't even talk. You can't even look them dead in the eyes. You have to look down at the ground. Like it's, I've done my research on it and it's so interesting and I'll, I will do it. Um, but, uh, but that's like taking way to the next level, but I highly recommend doing it. Yeah. One of the first Tim Ferriss episodes I ever listened to on his show, he was talking about, he just got back from a seven day monk retreat where it was a fast a silence exercise and no technology. And uh, they said before you can't come to that, they were like, hey, it's going to take you six months to come out of this because of how um, life-changing that is. So that's the power of meditation. Yeah, it is tremendously. Um, Our third one is, what's the best piece of advice you've ever received? Oh, best piece of advice. Um, Never give up. I I, I will always live by that. Never give up. But I was at, uh, I just got back uh, in town just now from a, uh, a, a wonderful conference with a very select uh, group of individuals. And, uh, and, and I don't know if this is advice, but it, it really hit me hard is that um, sometimes we're running a race and there's no finish line. And sometimes we need to understand when to stop running. And, uh, and, and that goes to the, my first topic is I say never give up. But there's, you're not giving up, in my opinion. You just need to understand when, when, that, when that's not your race to run. And, and that's something that I've understood in, in the next, my last three uh, to four months of uh, experiences that I have, uh, have been uh, bringing into my life is that um, sometimes you may want it extremely bad, but that other person may not. Yeah. And so you need to understand when to say, hey, you know, I'm done running. Yeah. I, I like to tell people when you look at it, you've got strengths and weaknesses and inside your weaknesses, there are things that you can get better at and you should get better at. And then there are things that you probably can get incrementally better at, but it's just not worth it. And I use Rudy as a perfect example, right? Rudy could have been the uh, greatest painter, the greatest real estate investor, the greatest entrepreneur of all time, but he spent so much time focused on one play, getting in for one play and one sack. And his story is super inspirational because he never gave up. But what are the opportunity costs to knowing when to cut your ties and move forward and into a different direction? So 100%. It's, it's interesting. Have you ever read Simon Sinek's uh, Infinite Game, by the way? I have not, no. Yeah, Simon Sinek Infinite Game talks about that. Like so many businesses run on a 90-day shot clock when really the goal of business is to outlast your competition, not beat them, just keep moving forward and being in business. So it's not about finishing the race, it's continuing down the journey. So it's a, uh, it's interesting parallel. Yeah, um, that's very interesting. What's the thing that you're most proud of in your life? My son. Yeah. My 17 month old son. He's my world. 
We, we talked about it before the show. Go check out Chris's Instagram. That dude's got some style and I am uh, jealous. I'm, I'm, I'm dressing him up. He's going to be, I'm going I'm to start tagging GQ. He's going to be next to little GQ. <laughs> uh, that's my, that's my best friend. I love him uh, tremendously. And, and that's my first child. And when, uh, when I first locked eyes on him and he locked eyes on me, um, my business just took, took a Scott. I mean, it, it went to Mars. I mean, yeah. my, the rocket ship flew. Um, and that's what I do every day is, is I work extremely hard. I wake up early uh, and I do it all for him. Yeah. That's awesome. Um, the last one is if you could sit down and eat a bowl of ice cream with who, anyone dead or alive, who would it be and why? Ooh, that's a good one. And it has to be one person. Yeah. One person. Oh, you got me on that one. Um, if it has to be one person dead or alive, that's a really good one. Uh, eat a bowl of ice cream. Um, hmm. gosh, you, you got me on that one. Let me think real quick. I would, um, I would probably want to sit down with, um, Steve Schwarzman. Yeah. Have you read his book recently? I've read them all. You're actually the second person to say that. Really? Yeah. 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 I'd want to sit down with him. Uh, he seems like a, a cool guy. Um, and, uh, and very relaxed. Um, and, uh, I'd want to sit down with him. I, I was going to say Elon Musk, but all I need to do is YouTube him. <laughs> so, you know, Steve Schwartzman, he, I like him because he's, he's, he's hidden. And that's how I, I truly am. Even though I have all the social media and I pour out all this content for people. Um, I, I kind of like to be like a Steve Schwartzman where I fly under the radar and, and I'm just, you know, relaxed. Um, and, uh, but I pour out all this content to help other people. Um, but I'd like to have uh, ice cream with him. That's fun. awesome. Um, well, Chris, super valuable content. I'm glad I got a chance to sit down with you and, and 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 kind of pick your brain on a lot of this stuff. And I would encourage a lot of listeners to go check out QC Capital because you, by far, I think, understand real estate, specifically in the Carolinas, better than anyone I've seen, connected with, or listened to. Um, if we wanted to point people to a direction where they could get in touch with you, where's the best place we could send them? Best place to go is qccapitalgroup.com and uh, fill out the uh, the investor form that is uh, going to come directly to our team. They'll filter it and then it'll come directly to me. We'll set up a one-on-one 15, 20 minute call so I can get to know you better to see if we are a good fit for a partnership for our next acquisition. Awesome. Thanks, Chris. All right. Thanks, Matt.